Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode five of Three, Two, One, No Kidding. Today we have our second Brett. Um, we wouldn't have done this back to back except for this Brett gave me some feedback on one of my other episodes, and I wanted to give him a chance to kind of speak to his thoughts. So you'll hear that later in the interview. Brett and I met at inpatient treatment a few years ago and have stayed in touch since. So I hope you enjoy what he has to say. Okay, we're here with Brett Devine. We're going to start off by you introducing yourself and telling us who you are, where you're from, what do you like to do, all that good stuff. All right. Well, like you said, my name's Brett. And I am the executive director of SEED, which is a nonprofit mental health and eventually it would be a full addiction clinic, but we're starting out as a strictly gambling addiction or compulsive gambling clinic. Grew up essentially my whole life in the beautiful state of Wisconsin and uh, lived out in Minnesota for approximately 12 years of my life. I went to culinary school out there as that's kind of my background in the uh, food and beverage industry as a chef and have my own catering business still, very little, but still, yeah. I mean, I enjoy hanging out with my boy, Tucker, my amazing Boston Terrier, like golfing, that's about it. I like traveling, or I like paddle boarding. I like being outdoors whenever I can. Also currently in school, going to University of Wisconsin as an online program to get my SAC degree, which is a substance abuse counselor, with the hope of eventually transitioning from executive director of SEED to being one of the substance abuse counselors there as well. So it sounds like you're on a path all about helping the gamblers. Why did you decide to get into that? I think for the main part is I became a compulsive gambler. I had uh, later on in my life, probably I would say about five or six years ago, I uh, started gambling in uh, our bars here around the area. And we have in our bars, we have gaming machines uh, similar to like slot machines. Never really played them. Never really understood the... uh, obsession people had with them and actually often kind of made fun of people who played them. Ironically, I became pretty hooked. I played one time, I think I played with $20. I had the ultimate, what I consider negative effect of a gambler and I won pretty big off of $20. It became my new outlet and my new, new escape and my release for the next three years of my life where I basically ran my life around gambling in the gaming machines and the bars. You won big on your first try? I won big on my first try. I put $20 in, playing actually $1 hands. On our machines, you could play anywhere from $0.50 to $5 max per bet. And I think I was playing like $1. You don't necessarily have to talk like what the winning was. I just didn't know that your first time. It was my first time and I won pretty big. And I know I didn't go back the next day, but it was shortly after that I started going on a regular basis. You said 
you gambled for about three years. So why did you decide to stop? Oh, wow. I think there are a lot of factors that led to that. Major depression on my part, immense suicidal tendencies, an attempt at suicide, just the devastation I was doing to my friends and my family and and everyone else. I knew something had to change. So how did you go about quitting? Um, I, I initially just started going to, ironically, AA. We didn't have many GA meetings at the time in this area. And the only thing I could really find at this time that was more of a support group style was uh, an AA meeting in our area. And those are pretty easy for me to find. So I went to those, I would say pretty regular. I probably went to four or five AA meetings a week, kind of just as an escape. And a lot of times I just hang out. We have a place in our area called the Genesis Club, and I would just go and hang out there whether I was going to a meeting or not, just to kind of stay away. Yeah, I did that. I would say for the first month that I stopped gambling until I was actually told that I should probably go to a different meeting that would be more beneficial to myself. So if I heard you right, you're telling me that you can go into all kinds of bars out there and gamble essentially on every street, but you couldn't find a GA meeting. That is correct. That is sad. It's ironic, but it's very difficult in our area to find a restaurant, bar, whether you're talking even a higher-end, finer dining, that doesn't have these gaming machines. And there's a lot of irony to it um, that we could always talk about later, but they're not actually legal in our area. It's not enforced through our local police department. I think they have bigger axes to grind. It's only a fine if you have five or less, and it pays off for itself. Even if these restaurants and bars did get fined for it, the fine is so minimal compared to the money they make off these machines. They have, they have more than five. It's actually a felony, but still ironic. They legally can't pay out. I'm learning things. Sorry, I'm digesting here. That's okay. It's uh, one of the things I'm battling with our local legislature to try to actually start to enforce this but unfortunately it's not a big driving concern on their part do you know if the state gets any money from it like here in new york it's all state-run casino not all but there's a lot of state-run casinos so the revenue is coming from the slot machines and the state benefits is that what happens there no they actually get zero. They get the tax money, which is pretty ironic too. So for the bars, they pay nothing. They pay absolutely nothing to have these machines in there. The places that rent the machines out to them will actually take 40%. The bar take the 60% that comes in of the winnings. The places that supply these machines also pay the state taxes on them. All right. I might be being dense here, but explain that to me again so they're paying taxes on the people selling the machines or renting the machines are paying taxes on the revenue they're getting from the bar is that absolutely correct 
Okay. And then the state, if somebody wins, if they win big, do they have like 1099s and? No, these machines will only pay out a certain amount. Most of them will, you can't win more than, I believe it's $1,500. And around here, I think it's like $1,550 or more you have to pay tax on. So it's, they've got a lot of ways around everything on these machines. Sounds that way. But for the bars, it's a, it's an immensely lucrative business. And when I ran one of my restaurants, I had machines in there and I profited well. I don't have any objection actually in our area, surprisingly, to these bars having them. It's still a, a scary proposition for people who have an addiction to gambling. Okay, so I totally got carried away with the whole slot machine mentality. Mm-hmm. So you were going to AA meetings, and what happened next? I was finally asked to eventually find a different meeting that his words were more compatible to what my issue was. And that's where I found the GA meeting. And I went to the GA meeting, and I think I stayed clean up until my 30th day. And on my 30th day, after I got my amazing keychain i went out to the the bars and hit the gaming machines again and lost a substantial amount of money in a two-day period where no one still knew at this time that i continued gambling again went back to ga and actually i think i continued for the next two weeks to tell people that i was still not gambling until it came to a head with going out on another gambling binge and losing all the money i had and Became suicidal, actually attempted suicide, was put into a local psychiatric hospital on a three-day hold. And directly from there, I ended up going to Vanguard in Minnesota, the amazing project turnabout for my gambling addiction. So part of why we're having this conversation today is because you politely told me how you disagreed with me about something I said on one of the other episodes regarding suicide. And because you mentioned that as part of your journey to Vanguard, can you kind of tell me what your feelings were or what your opinion is? It's important that we get all the perspectives out there for the audience. Sure. I think it's different for me. I obviously haven't known you and your experience as we met at Vanguard. It was it was difficult for me and suicide for me was never the avenue I wanted to take. But what gambling does to you is so immensely emotionally and not only that, but I think the worst thing and what studies have shown, especially for men, when it becomes financially devastating, it becomes your only outlet. And I took issues with some of the the statements you have Again, just knowing you, knowing that kind of was never on your radar, that was never in your path, and you had mentioned something about you didn't do it because it was an immensely selfish thing to do. And where I do agree with that, I think for me, trying to help compulsive gamblers, it's a dangerous avenue to express that to them that way, especially for people who have not even begun to get into the program and know that there are other avenues or other ways out. I think it it just struck a chord with me. And again, it's more, I know you and how you feel about it. 
And I'm just the complete opposite. I never felt where I know it's a selfish act. I never thought at the time I'm being selfish. I thought more, I'm helping people. I'm not devastating my family anymore financially. I'm not, I'm not causing all this pain and heartache for them anymore with my gambling. Now, in hindsight, obviously, me not being here would be much more devastating to my loved ones than continuing to gamble and hurting them financially. But it's always been a thing that I'm very leery and I'm very sympathetic to people who do have these suicidal tendencies because it's just never been kind of like you where it was never on your radar. It was never on my radar until I started gambling. I suffered with severe depression and anxiety ever since I can remember, but that was still nothing that was ever on my radar. I just like to be cautious when we throw around. I don't want to say shaming because that's a bad terminology. I don't think people really do that, but I don't want people to feel ashamed of anything they're doing before they even get going into the program. And so I think that was my only real critique I was trying to come across in a nice way. Oh, you did a nice way. I'm not by any means looking to argue with you for sure. I do have a question though. So, and I, I think it comes from, to your point, we have different perspectives or experiences on this. So in your adult life, well, in your life, like I know in the in recent history that you've lost people in your group to suicide, did you ever have experience in your life prior to your gambling community, your gambling recovery community, to anybody else committing suicide in your life? I have, and I've actually had people lie and tell me that someone has. So, and I'll be honest, I was angry, and I absolutely thought it was you know, on the flip side and being hypocritical to how I feel now was a selfish thing. It's an interesting background for me where my mentality has changed, but because I'm an addict and because I know how I reacted to it, again, it just makes me nervous how, again, I don't want to add, I'm not advocating it by any means. So part of the podcast in my mind kind of goes into, like you said, there's not a lot of GA meetings, but there's a lot of slot machines or, you know, there's betting everywhere. So in my mind, I picture someone leaving a gambling establishment and as they throw, you know, the loyalty cards out the window and they're driving home in all this, you know, despair. And like, in my mind, I hope they find the show and hear something that makes a difference if they are suicidal. So if you had an opportunity to be the voice in that car and talk to that person after being there and in that situation, what would you tell them? Wow. I mean, that's a big question. That's why I'm the brains of the show. Yeah, I'm I'm sensing that. That's great. Even though I know it's difficult for people to stop and take a moment and, and think of the bigger picture, I think it's just imperative that One, it's going to start from education everywhere else, at casinos, at bars, at all these places, that this is an actual disease and this is an addiction and it's something not to be shamed upon. As hard as it is 
I think the more that we do educate people to this, the less stigma there's going to become with it. And I think the less likely people are to end up taking the road that clearly so many gamblers do. I mean, I think you need to take a step back, take a minute, think about the big picture and try to reach out to whatever avenues they are. And unfortunately, pretty minimal right now for gambling. Yeah, I think that was something else you corrected me on. You had sent me a paper a while back and you had kind of stats and and at the conferences I've gone to, I've heard different stats, but what is your research? What has that told you? Rate of suicide in gambling versus alcohol or drug addiction? It's high. It is at a rate of two to one over any other addiction. And we're we're talking... 25% of every compulsive gambler will attempt suicide at some point, which is a staggering number. One in four. One in four. Not complete, but will attempt. Up to 80% of every compulsive gambler has some serious uh, suicidal ideations, some sort of plan. So again, these numbers are pretty staggering. And I think what's even more alarming for people when we talk that it's a two to one ratio and why I think you had a much higher ratio, it could be true. I think the problem is, and I just recently read a study from University of Minnesota did a study about um, gambling suicides in the state of Minnesota and it was pretty high. And they were saying that they absolutely believe it's more because when someone commits suicide or completes suicide is what we properly should say is uh, they don't do research. They don't do further research on, on the reasoning for suicides. They, they don't delve deeper into why these suicides have taken place. They obviously when someone passes away, they view it as a natural death or a homicide or a suicide, whatever it is. They don't delve deeper into trying to figure out whether, Oh, well, this could have been from Gammon because he was in significant debt. So I think that's where the numbers can get skewed. But factually, from what studies they've actually realized, it's at least two to one compared to any other addiction, which is, again, a staggering number. I know for us here in, in my recovery community, we talked about the Vegas shooting. And our first impression was that the guy was a gambler. And, and that's one of the first things coming to my mind about how we don't know the whole story. We don't know that that's true or not. I'm sure that it is, just based on my gut and me knowing everything. But that's what you just reminded me of. And then I read recently, you corrected me on not calling it committing suicide. You called it completing? They call it completing now. And I'll be honest, I think in the... Uh, therapy community they've kind of frowned upon the word committing they kind of put a stigma let's say to that word so yeah it is now they now say completing suicide i heard Um, another word recently and i can't remember what it was but i think the history was something like suicide was a crime in so many states sure absolutely a crime but i can't remember the word they used anyway so talking about all this stuff, what are you doing? You talked about seed a little bit, but what are you doing to educate 
and, and heighten awareness because they know you got stuff going on um, and that it's important to you. You're getting educated about it. So what are your strategies to kind of letting the public know what's going on? I would say since I got out of Vanguard two and a half years, I was going to say months ago, I met with uh, some local legislative people who tried to get awareness out. We actually at the time had a meeting set up with our state attorney general, and then she was floated out of office before our meeting ever happened, unfortunately. So our goal is to get in front of people, especially as SEED advances and gets closer to our opening date. We want to get in front uh, of judges and local you know, our local politicians and try to get the awareness out there and begin to get some funding. It's a struggle. I, we have talked about before with, with funding, and I know how you had mentioned on, uh, as I listened to all your podcasts so far, you'd mentioned on one of your other ones about the lack of funding in so many states. And Wisconsin, unfortunately, happens to be one of those states where we have no financial backing towards gamblers, which is scary. I had to pay considerable amounts of money that I didn't have anymore due to my gambling to attempt to get treatment for gambling. So I think one of the big parts in our state and what we're trying to work with our legislature on is getting more money from the casinos, trying to get a use tax off of them and working off these gaming machines where any of the tax collected off these gaming machines, which by the way, again, are still illegal, at least can go to support people who don't have the financial means to seek treatment at all. So something that we heard at the conference, which seems so brilliant and so obvious, and it's frustrating that it's not in place, but when we're talking about taxing, a fellow suggested scratch-offs is one of our big problems here, that there's no tax on scratch-offs, like cigarettes and alcohol, there's a tax. So if it was an 8%, you know, should they be paying a dollar eight for a dollar scratch-off? That seems like a great place to find some revenue to help people get treatment. And it's like you said, it's such a simple concept, you know, and in my mind, I know people in the lottery community or or what have you, who would sell these would go, well, we're just not going to sell as many. And we would go, okay, okay. <laughs> brilliant. <laughs> you know, So many people are being devastated by this. And again, I'm not advocating that they need to get rid of lottery tickets or the state lottery. And look, I know that majority of the people in the entire world can gamble responsibly and not become addicted. You know, that's not what I'm saying. It, it's there has to be support for things that are addictive behaviors. And like you said, just simply taxing lottery dollars or scratch off tickets or, you know, Minnesota's big thing is they don't have gaming machines. They have pull tabs in every bar. Charge a tax on them. Absolutely. And if you don't want to pay a tax on them, then you just don't play. It seems simple, but apparently not. I could see being, when I was gambling, being the one who was pissed off. You know, if I walked up with a $5 bill, I'd want five tickets, not four and some change back. I could see that totally infuriating me. Well, that, that's because gamblers don't carry change on them. <laughs> sure, we do. We need the gas money. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That is true. So, all right. So we're going to bounce back. There was a couple questions that we kind of got sidetracked on. So you said that 
you had gone back out, you got your 30 day keychain, and then you went back out, but you didn't tell anybody. Do you feel like there was any value in that? Is relapse a word that we're allowed to use? Because we call it reoccurrence of the disorder at the center. So did you find any value in going back out after those 30 days is my question. So knowing that when I become a substance abuse counselor, I'm going to have to use those big terms. I still call them relapses. So I think it's okay to call them what you want. Do I find value in, in a relapse? In your relapse. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, if it didn't get to the point where, again, I had financially devastated myself in such a short amount of time, I probably could have gotten away with it some more. I don't know that one, I was willing to quit at the time, and two, that I could quit. I didn't know that I had anything else in my life that was my escape anymore. So if you had more money, would you have not quit? Honestly, at that time, I'm sure I would have continued to gamble. So running out of money was part of the jump start. It was, and it was the continuing to lie and scheme and cover things up, I think, was detrimental too. But I saw no other outlet for me. I had this grave fear that, you know, I've had a lot of friends say, well, if I stop drinking, I'm just not going to have fun. Well, that was kind of my mentality. You know, this is my escape. I don't know that I'm going to be able to enjoy anything else outside of this. And so I wasn't ready to quit. And if I had more money, I would have continued to gamble. So now that you're not gambling, what do you do for fun and to fill that, that space? I do a lot of things. Golf, I paddleboard, I get tattoos. I work a lot. Obviously working essentially kind of a, not two full-time jobs, two big jobs and going to school full-time. So I put a lot of my efforts into that. I'm also in a headspace now mentally where so many more things in my life and so many little things just bring me enjoyment, which I didn't have before when I was gambling. I had the depression, I had the anxiety, and I wasn't doing anything about it. I didn't seek any treatment. I wasn't taking any medications. I wasn't in a good headspace. And I'm at the point in my life where, you know, not every day is amazing, but it, every day is good. And I, I get enjoyment out of the little things, which I was never able to do before. So you've mentioned depression a couple different times from either your education or experience what how do you feel that depression and mental illness relate to gambling addiction i think it's a huge part of any addiction but especially uh gambling addiction obviously for me this study is almost 80 percent 75 to 80 percent of people diagnosed with gambling disorder have a co-occurring mental illness and and typically it's going to be anxiety or depression so I think it's such a commonplace amongst gambling addicts. And if you really think about it, it's a mental disorder. It's been diagnosed now with the DSM-5, not that we're going to get delve deep into that, that it's an actual mental disorder. And I think that's important uh, for people to understand as well, that the effect that it has on your brain isn't just through the dopamine and and uh, bringing the excitement. There are downfalls to it, which can cause from, for so many people, just severe depression and anxiety. So just in case there's someone out there that doesn't know what a DMD... DSM-5, it's a 
Diagnostics Statistics Manual. It's the fifth edition. Fifth edition came out in 2013, and that's when compulsive gambling, or at the time they had called it pathological gambling, was actually put into the uh, DSM-5 as a mental disorder. It's essentially the uh, mental illness Bible. Okay, so we're going to go backwards again. If you didn't go to the hospital and you didn't go to Vanguard, do you think you'd be not gambling right now? No, no. I don't. I I think part of it is I don't know that I would have been alive if I would have continued to gamble. That was the path I was on in my headspace and where I was at mentally. I don't know that I would have survived it. So my roundabout answer to that is no. I don't think I would have been not gambling anymore. Do you think there's a benefit to inpatient treatment? I 100% do. It took me a while. It took me probably two weeks into the process to go along with the process. But in my headspace still, again, I was, I was in a different place. I, was, I wasn't necessarily there for me at the time. And it took me a couple weeks into treatment and meeting people and having the, the amazing counselor that I ended up having by the grace of God there that I finally realized that I was doing it for me. No matter what was happening on the outside or what was going to happen after, I needed to get better or there was never going to be a good outcome. It was immensely beneficial. I think as with any program, you have to want to do it and you have to work at it. People aren't going to do the work for you. I truly think that Vanguard for me had saved my life. So SEED is going to be treatment as well, but the structure's not like sleepover day camp, right? Correct. Um, And initially, our goals were different. What we're going to start out now, because of the lack of even awareness for gambling addiction in our area, we're going to start smaller with just a, a group therapy program. That will include individual treatments here and there. And then once we're more established, we're going to turn it into a, a complete uh, day treatment and intensive outpatient program. So day treatment, it's almost as intense as an inpatient, only you don't stay. It is a Monday through Friday, six to seven hours a day, and it is intensive work. You just don't stay on the property. You you go home, you go wherever it is that, that you do. And then most people after the uh, day treatment program will move into the intensive outpatient program where, again, very similar, but you graduate from going five days a week to three days a week, probably nine to 12 hours a week. With the patients, and I'm sorry, my curiosity is getting the best of me. But Vanguard, if if somebody was there today and somebody shows up a week later, they're in the same group. Is that the same kind of thing when you talk about your classes and as they, the person who's, I don't want to say ahead, but ahead in time or has been involved longer, new people would get commingled with people that have already been participating in the program? Correct. You know, and the curriculum is is similar. And I think you have to set it up in the way that no matter when someone comes in, they have to be able to relate and integrate themselves into the program. I think it's very difficult to, as much as you'd like, to sit there and go, well, everything's going to start on January 1st, so we're going to do this for, for 12 weeks, and then we're going to have another group come in. You know, unfortunately, 
people don't all become addicted at the same time and people don't all seek treatment at the same time. And so I think it's, I mean, in a perfect world, that'd be amazing. In a perfect world, there'd be no addiction, but to have a program like that would be great, but it's just not realistic. And I think we have harbored a what I think is an amazing curriculum that no matter when you come in, you're going to be supportive and you can pick up right away and, and uh, not feel like you haven't been there. One of the things I've learned in my recovery is how to laugh at myself. And quite frankly, I messed up the recording and don't have the conclusion of Brett's interview. We will wish him well on his seed adventure and appreciate the fact that he's doing what he can to help the addicts in Wisconsin and to heighten awareness with the politicians throughout the community. We'll probably hear from him again once it's up and rolling sometime next year. But for now, we're going to close this episode. And again, my positive quote, I think, kind of ties into the interview because for both Brett and I, you know, if we didn't go to inpatient treatment, if we didn't take the steps to move forward to change our lives and to be active in recovery instead of active in addiction, we wouldn't be where we are. So today's quote comes from a real person, Mark Betterson. He says, you are only one decision away from a totally different life. I love that. Till next time, beautiful people. Thank you for listening. 